Hello, everyone. I'm Heather Ward, the SCA's Director of Content Strategy, and you're listening to the SCA Podcast. Today's episode is part of our Expo Lecture Series, dedicated to showcasing a curated selection of the extensive live lectures offered at our Specialty Coffee Expo. Check out the show notes for relevant links and a full transcript of today's lecture. This episode of Expo 2019 Lectures Podcast is supported by Soft Engine Coffee One, powered by SAP. Built upon SAP's business-leading enterprise resource planning solution, Soft Engine Coffee One is designed to quickly and easily take your small-to-medium coffee company, working at any point along the coffee chain, to the next level of success. Learn more about Soft Engine Coffee One at softengine.com, with special pricing available for SCA members. Soft Engine, the most intelligent way to grow your business. The episode you're about to hear was recorded live at the 2019 Specialty Coffee Expo in Boston. Don't miss next year's lecture series in Portland. Find us on social media or sign up for our monthly newsletter to keep up to date with all of our announcements, including ways to get involved in next year's expo and early bird ticket release. Last April, much of the discussion at Expo and Rico Symposium was centered on the coffee price crisis and the future of specialty coffee. In a special episode to kick off the new year, we're releasing a two-part lecture on the sea market that sought to provide clarity and actionable data for the specialty industry. This is part two. If you haven't already listened to part one, we strongly recommend going back and listening before continuing on with this episode. All right, thanks everyone for coming, staying, attending part two of uh, the two-part arc on the coffee price crisis. Um, If you weren't here in the room for the last hour, uh, we discussed a little bit about the overview of the last 18 months of price declines, uh, how the C market can create shared value. Uh, we talked about um, the overview of an organization called Prome Cafe, which is an organization of 10 producing countries in Latin America, the human and environmental costs of low prices. We discussed a little bit about the World Producer Forum, its mission and its role in the international scene as well as the relationship um, between costs and, and low prices for World Coffee Producer Forum members. The second part of this story uh, will focus on sort of seeing forward and what the current price crisis um, means for the future of specialty coffee. And we have a couple, we're going to do this, uh, this session a little bit differently. It's going to be focused more around a panel rather than uh, individual presentations. And so let me introduce our esteemed panelists today. So first of all, our panel is going to be moderated by Vera Rafael Espindola. Um, she is the, the sustainable advisor for SADER. Um, and since 2016, Vera has been working with the Secretary of Agriculture, Livestock and Rural Development, Fisheries and Food in Mexico, now called SADER, and um, on the plan to create care for coffee. Uh, she focused on harmonizing the elements of sustainable coffee production in the National uh, Coffee Program, which has a goal to revive Mexican coffee sector by increasing productivity in a sustainable manner, whereby she also oversaw its market strategy. We also have presentation today from Kim Elena Ionescu, who is the Chief Sustainability Officer for the Specialty Coffee Association. And in her role as Chief Sustainability Officer of the SCA, Kim raises awareness, develops strategy, and leads action to address the biggest social, environmental, and economic challenges facing the coffee industry. 
Prior to joining the SEA in 2015, Kim spent a decade buying coffee and directing sustainability for Counterculture Coffee in North Carolina, USA, where she still resides today with her husband and two daughters. Uh, we will also have uh, uh, Juan Esteban Orduz, who is just presenting in part one of this lecture. Uh, Juan Esteban is the CEO and president of the Colombian Coffee Federation, which is the FNC North America branch. He is on the board of directors for Rainforest Alliance, the global coffee platform, and CQI. And he's one of the founding members and uh, general coordinator for the World Coffee Producer Forum, who, if you were just in the room, he told us um, a lot about. We have Chad Trevick, who is the founder of Recipro Cafe. After more than two decades working on the roaster side in the specialty coffee industry as a director of coffee, Chad Trevick uh, formed Recipro, Recipro Cafe LLC, a consulting group uh, prioritizing mutual benefit in the coffee value chain. Uh, Chad has spent uh, time gaining deeper understanding of the financial side of the coffee market. His goal is to broaden industry understanding of supply and challenges, and his focus is to maintain access to green coffee as a raw material while strengthening the entire value chain and encouraging scalable mutual benefit relationships. Then, last but not least, we have Ben Zwirling Beltruges, who is the Vice President of Coffee for Fairtrade USA. Ben has joined Fairtrade USA in late 2012 to strengthen FTUSA's role as a platform for sustainable supply chain management in service of the needs of farmers and their buyers alike. As, as Vice President of Coffee, Ben leads the organization's business development and supply chain services in coffee. His career began in 2003 when he joined Thanksgiving Coffee Company, a pioneering specialty roaster and early Fairtrade innovator. While at Thanksgiving, Ben managed coffee buying and supply chain development operations, working with farmers and cooperatives throughout Latin America, Asia, and Africa. So we're going to start first by um, introducing Kim to talk a little bit more about the SCA's Coffee Price Crisis Response Initiative, and then we'll move into the panel. Thank you, Colleen, for the introduction. Um, my name is Kim Elena. I'm the Chief Sustainability Officer for the SCA. And um, you know, building on the, um, the presentations that were just made, I think most of you were in the room for those. So I'm not going to um, show a graph of the coffee price uh, over the course of the past few years and talk about how we got into the situation that we're in. Um, I'm on stage in this particular moment to talk about what the SCA is doing because I um, believe that when we move into the panel, that would probably be an early question is, well, what's the SCA's role in all of this? When, you know, we're all here gathered at an SCA event. That's what's connecting us. Um, shouldn't we be talking about what the SCA can do or what we can do as SCA members and stakeholders through the association? So um, that's the first thing that I want to talk about is um, what? What are we talking about? What are we doing? Um, so around December, what was it, 13th, 14th, uh, these articles started appearing about the SEA launching a price crisis response initiative. And, um, and I think that the word crisis can be uh, a polarizing one, or we could spend the rest of our time today arguing over whether or not this is a crisis. Uh, I think on the positive side, a crisis uh, implies that um, there's a need for action, which I think is true. The, um, the argument against it would be that a crisis implies that it's new, which I think the, um, the presentations that you just saw would suggest or would argue that this is not at all new. You know, in fact, that we've been in crisis for a long time and, and maybe just haven't been paying attention. 
But um, we launched this initiative to mark this moment as uh, as different. And there was the psychological component of that when the commodity futures market price went below a dollar in August and September. Um, it's still there, uh, not going up, generally going down since that uh, that moment. So, um, uh, so to take advantage of the fact that uh, that we are there's a a different feeling about whether it's been a crisis or not. It feels different at this moment. And um, there's also kind of a, a political will to do something different. And part of that has to do with organizations like the World Coffee Producer Forum. So the last time we were in a, a crisis where the price of coffee on that market was below a dollar, there was no World Coffee Producer Forum, no unified voice saying, you know, this is the, the agenda. Um, we didn't have the same sort of urgency around climate change. Studies demonstrating that, you know, or suggesting that 50% of the land suitable for coffee will not be suitable in 2050. That wasn't so much a part of the public consciousness. That wasn't so much a part of the industry consciousness. And the specialty coffee industry was at a very different place also. Um, it was not... Uh, gathering 14,000 people for conferences um, or communicating with an even larger audience through, uh, through social media. Um, it didn't have the kind of international um, reach that we have now or diversity in terms of who we as an association represent. So all of these are reasons for um, taking this confluence of circumstances and launching an initiative to address the current price crisis that um, that we're in. So the initiative consists of, in very sort of specific or logistical terms, of four staff members, two members of the SCA board of directors, both of whom are here um, and part of this uh, this panel today, and um, and then a couple of people who are putting time in through their organization. So we have a, a team that's been working on this uh, through the SCA Sustainability Center, which is the center that I am the chief officer of, and until December was the sole employee or, or sole member of. So it was a center of, um, of one. And in doing this work, I believe that in many ways, this is the Sustainability Center realizing its potential. Or you know, when we unified the American and European associations and created a sustainability center, it was with the promise of being able to do more than we had ever been able to do in sustainability prior. To move from raising awareness about issues that are affecting specialty coffee um, and recognizing leadership like we do through sustainability awards of um, good examples or, or examples of best practices in different um, areas of the coffee value stream um, to uh, bringing those actors together and doing something, doing something, uh, doing something different. So that's the um, that's the what that's the the price crisis response aiming to move us from raising awareness and uh, and talking and then identifying what it is that we can be doing collectively and what it is that we can and need to be doing individually also. So why are we doing it? This is the background for it, is the, um, the fall of the commodity futures price, downward slope, the World Coffee Producer Forum, and, um, and how decent coffee will be hard to find by 2050. And this is an article from Popular Press. This is not you know, an industry-facing uh, article. I, I highlighted that because, uh, it, to me, it speaks to the fact that when we're talking about the future of coffee and the role of specialty coffee, um, you know, there's a... 
there's a high likelihood that coffee will continue in some form. You know, that uh, when we're talking about suitability for coffee and when we look at the supply and demand of coffee, there is coffee available. There is in the world. There is coffee being planted still now all the time um, in fewer countries maybe than it, was, uh, than it was planted 10 or 15 years ago. But there is, there is still a market for coffee. But the question is, is that the coffee that we want to drink? Is that the coffee that we want to buy and present to our customers. Is that specialty coffee? So um, when we're talking about why the Specialty Coffee Association has a a role to play in this, it's that specialty coffee is arguably more threatened. This is more risky, higher risk to us, um, those of us who care about the way that coffee tastes, um, those of us who have built our businesses and livelihoods on specialty coffee. Um, That's the coffee that's at the most risk right now. So we have a, an obligation to act in the interest of the partnerships that we have made and built our businesses and marketing strategies on and in the interest of our, our future and the future of our businesses. So that's the why. And then, um, and then I'm also putting up this slide about who, uh, because one of the things that um, the SCA cannot do is, um, A, to tell you all uh, what to pay for coffee. That's, um, that's something a trade association can't do. Uh, another thing that we can't do is to buy coffee ourselves. So when people will ask, you know, well, what's the SCA doing about, um, about low prices? I, we're not, I mean, we're not doing any, we're not active in the market. But we talk to all of you, and many of you are active in some way in this, um, in this market. And many of the, uh, because we are an association made up of members, many of our members who are not, many of our members are value stream actors. And then we also have many members and stakeholders who are other initiatives seeing this same moment and reading the same writing on the wall and beginning initiatives of their own. So some of those include um, certification organizations that have many, many years working with producer organizations. Many of the, some of those are other nonprofit organizations that are questioning the role that they play in, um, in perpetuating the market dynamics and power dynamics in the industry as they have existed for so long. Um, to date, between December and whatever month we're in now, April, a lot of the work of the, um, the price crisis response team has been around understanding what kind of work has been done to date, uh, what kind of work is to be done in the future, and how to coordinate that so that we don't duplicate efforts. Um, because I think that sometimes the urgency around acting now can send people running off in a bunch of directions without understanding who is doing what and, um, and where there might be opportunities to collaborate. And also without understanding where we have the chance to reach different audiences. So um, some of these organizations have stakeholders, audiences in common to the Specialty Coffee Association, and some of them are, are different. So um, where can we have different mes- messages and develop different approaches? Um, and then... Uh, Another reason I put the slide up is because when people come to the association asking, as I mentioned earlier, what are we doing? Um, often the next question after what's the SCA doing is, 
well, what else is happening in the industry? Because a lot of specialty coffee stakeholders are small. They could be small roasting companies or retailers or small producers. Um, they don't necessarily participate in the dialogue or, you know, invest the time, feel like that they have the time to invest in, in understanding all the whole landscape of different um, programs and, um, and partnerships that exist out in the wider world of coffee and then beyond coffee also. So I believe that you know, the SCA has a, a responsibility if we, are, um, if we are to represent that and, and inform and educate and um, involve the smaller actors in, in, coffee, in the coffee sector, as I think we historically have, to be a resource not only for, you know, for, action, for individual action for those unique people and companies, but also a um, repository of knowledge or a place to find information about what else might be happening beyond the, the boundaries of your, um, your understanding of, of coffee. So that's what's happened. Uh, that's, what's, you know, that's where we are to date. We just finished a RICO um, program that was exclusively focused on the price crisis and had um, a lot of, uh, of conversations and challenges that I think um, will continue to, you know, kind of galvanize people and uh, toward greater action in, in the future. But I think that there's still an enormous opportunity. And I would challenge everyone in this room to think about, uh, as you're listening to the panel, what are you know, what, it is, what is our role as specialty coffee? Um, what's the role that you would like to see the association play? And then also to think about the role that you play as an individual, um, what you're committed to doing differently in the future, and also, you know, what role you have, what role your position, whatever it is that you play, whether you're a um, barista or a coffee buyer or a, an NGO, um, to ch- you know, to think about what role that position has played in getting us to the point that we are, because I think that there's no amount of self-reflection that's um, it's too much, that we'd benefit a lot from, uh, from thinking about how we individually, in the years that we have been in coffee, whether that's one or 21, um, how we've gotten to where we are today. Thank you. Good uh, morning. Um, I think for us, and, and, and listening to this morning's presentation, it's become clear that although there are some structures that just work as it works, there are elements to what we see happening, actually, to this mechanism that supposedly work. We can see from, for example, René's Promo Café presentation that although certain things work, there are negative implications to what we see the coffee farmers that most of us work with. And I think it's based on that, I really think it's our responsibility to also call that out, what we see, but also really call out certain action, what we can do. Um, yesterday at RICO, we finished the day in, in announcing certain pledges and commitments that we wanted to see in these changes. I think we all are here to also wanting to be informed, wanting to also see what we all can do within our own circle of influence. So um, this conversation that we're starting here with these four individuals is something that I really want to include you in the conversation. So I'll be looking also over uh, whoever has a question or even a comment. Um, 
I think all of us here pretend do not have all the answers, but we really would like to give some more clarification on what we're doing and what we're seeing. I'm going to start actually with just um, posing a, a question I have for Kim. And um, one of the things that we are here, we, we work in the specialty coffee industry, we work with specialty coffee actors, so to say, um, but we're just a small part of this whole sector. Um, Kim, um, regarding the, the initiative that the SEA has started, um, do you think that in the foreseen future it is necessary for the SCA to also actively interact with the larger players of the industry? Yes. Just kidding. That's too quick. <laughs> no, I'll, I'll, say, I'll say more than that. Um, that, is a, that is the answer, though. Um, I think that uh, I mentioned the sort of last price crisis moment or the last time we used that language um, being about 17 years ago, and that the specialty coffee industry was in a very different place, or the specialty coffee segment of the industry was in a very different place. And I wonder at the time whether we might have said no, or we might have said that um, you know specialty needed to uh, to separate itself, or to um, that specialty was the solution to the uh, the crisis. I think you know that's a, that's an interesting subject for another lecture. Is what role has specialty played in the uh, in the years since? But um, I think that you know I look at specialty coffee now and I see what a broad range of uh, of companies and and interpretations um, that and is enveloped in it. And I feel like um, while specialty is at a, a higher risk um, because our existence depends on having a differentiated product. So if coffee only came from one place, uh, if coffee only tasted one way, there would be all sorts of, um, of economic um, reasons not to want to have a singular supplier, but and that would be true for anyone. But for specialty, that's compounded by the fact that, you know, for coffee to be special, it implies that there's a difference. So, you know, we have to keep that in mind, that um, diversity is our friend, you know, and I think that we, we see that in um, all other areas of, uh, of the industry as the industry has grown and embraced diversity. And I think that we need to keep that in mind for our supply also. Um, and uh, so while, at, on one hand, that were sort of more under threat, I also feel like the idea that we could kind of exist without a commercial market to support it. Um, like, I can't imagine what that would look like from an infrastructure perspective in a coffee-producing country. You know, if there was um, only specialty coffee coming out of Guatemala or coming out of um, Ethiopia and no commercial coffee, then how much more expensive would that coffee be uh, for the lack of a, a commercial market to kind of increase the economies of scale. Um, so I don't feel like trying to separate and create specialty-only zones and commercial-only zones is, um, is something that we are going to succeed in doing um, without an acceptance of much, much higher, uh, much, much higher costs. And I would encourage us to work think about what are the different approaches that are going to be better adapted for commercial coffee and better adapted for specialty coffee, but sort of stay in close communication as we do that. Thank you, Kim. 
Um, Juan Esteban, you also had um, interaction with um, these larger actors, if you want to call it that way, um, during an action that you guys did as the World Producer Forum, I think it was last year, with sending out the letters to several CEOs. Um, could you share a bit more um, the intention behind the letters and then the reaction uh, to the letters? Thank you. Thank you, Vera. Yes, we did. We did. We've been doing lots of lots of actions in the in the World Coffee Producers Forum in terms of of uh, reaching out to the rest of the uh, of the industry, the rest of the value chain. Uh, as I mentioned in my brief presentation, under the the uh, principle of co-responsibility, we all have, we all are all responsible for the health of the chain. That uh, that has included, you know, uh, last May we got together the Colombia and Brazil. And we issued a very strong statement. Uh, Brazil, the CNC, which is the, represents the co-ops, where the unions, uh, Brazilian specialty coffee, you know, almost all the government, the Minister of Agriculture, the players on our side, the Federation, which is kind of the the, uh, the unified uh, leadership in uh, in uh, coffee growing in Colombia. Uh, and uh, and last September during ICO, we had uh, during the meeting of ICO, we had a meeting of the of the producers associations. We were present there, some, some on the phone and some, some, uh, and some uh, uh, present. And we said, we, let's, let's, uh, if we are advocating for a dialogue, a constructive dialogue, we need to have the dialogue at the decision-making level. Uh, there was, there was uh, we sent a letter to, uh, to uh, some of the most significant CEOs, of the ones, CEOs of the most significant companies in the, in the, in the business, uh, some responded, some didn't. Uh, with some we met, um, and uh, and uh, let's say that in general, I would say that, that there was a between cold and warm answer. No, 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 no real hot answer. Let's say, among others, because on one hand, if you're making a lot of money, you don't want to stop making a lot of money. That's one thing. I mean, at the end, you're being judged by your balance sheet and your and your PL. And, uh, and that's how you get your bonus. I'm being a little graphic here, but, but this, is, this is how business works. And uh, on the other hand, this is, in, in some cases, at the CEO level, although they, or, although they are the decision makers, they, this is not an issue that has been brought to their attention with, with enough urgency. So they know there's a problem there with, with fruit growers somewhere, but they don't really know what's going on. They're looking at the numbers and looking at the supply chain and so on, but not really at what's happening with the with the farmers. So it was it was uh, the uh, there was uh, there was uh, a couple of interesting responses saying, "Okay, guys, so design a solution and bring it to me. We'll see if we can." This is the easiest way to 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 do nothing. If you do a counterpart, okay, then just come up with something and come and show it to me to see what we do. So that's that's a kind of a non-starter for a conversation. It was everybody very very kind and very polite, um, but uh, but no real no real action uh, was uh, happened because of that. Even after the meetings, I mean, there was a, there's a lot of always uh, you know we feel your pain, which I don't get exactly how can you feel the pain of the grower, but uh, but we feel your pain and we support you and yeah sure, I don't know how you feel my pain, and uh, how is it you're going to support me? And uh, and so I guess this uh, this uh, this to say, and again I'm being a little graphic only, but but we need to continue building this dialogue among the whole chain. I guess uh, I keep saying that, uh, that just to finish the 
thought is everybody's doing what they're supposed to be doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, and uh, roasters, traders, I mean, all the players in the world, they're supposed to have profitable, profitable operations. Mm-hmm. The, the, the question is at what expense, at what cost? And, uh, and the, the more producers, and something that, that Kim mentioned is, for the first time, that's a unified voice for, for producers. So I, for lack of a better word, I think we have become an annoyance for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and between becoming an annoyance and a bigger annoyance and a reputational risk, mm-hmm. uh, there are not that many steps. So, so this, is, this is building up. We'll see, let's see what happens in Brazil because, because uh, the situation is very difficult, very complicated. I don't know how much presence the industry is going to have. I, I have the impression that a lot of people are coming. Uh, but even if not, the message will go loud and clear. And, uh, and uh, not just in the form of, of, of all the panels and the studies and the experts, but also in form of, of, of the study that Jeffrey Sachs is putting together, what he will uh, say there. This will not be a custom-made answers for, mm-hmm. for producers. I'm sure there will be some things we will not like, uh, but then it's going to be an interesting environment for authorized voice that will lead to a, what, I, what I, my personal opinion is that, that we have to have an informed and serious and, uh, and mature conversation in this, uh, in this and, and calm down conversation. So the answer is to your point is some responses, not very, very active, let's say, mm-hmm. but, uh, but at least it's, it's up there because they... There were some meetings. In some cases, they put someone in charge. Like, you know what? See what these people want. Because it's, you know, signing by, I don't recall, what's like 12 or 14 associations represent like 90% of the, of the cover production in the world. Mm-hmm. So it was, it, was, it was not insignificant. So they are at least, at least they are, uh, they have some expectation and, and, uh, and some intrigue mm-hmm. to see how this is going to evolve. I just want to add that, um, Mexico is part of, of, of Pomecafe, and uh, we have meetings among the countries in Pomecafe. And what I wanted to share um, and, and add to what Juan Seven just mentioned is that our frustration to the reaction has been simply, we see here our fellow neighboring country, Colombia, which has much more of a leverage when it comes to being a producing country than the other countries. You know, there's smaller, um, even some people say that there are also small little Mexican countries um, <laughs> by some people. Um, but, but, but what our frustration was that if Colombia is not able to call them out and invite them to have a dialogue and us supporting that initiative and action with our signature, but led by Colombia, when and how and how much louder do we as producing countries need to act and, and, and say something before they will enter into a dialogue with us. So I think, and thinking also to other ways of, of, of actors within our sector to, to engage in order to let them know that this is a serious situation, I think that from our side at Bomecafe that has been uh, one of the responses of our side of why are they not reacting and entering into a dialogue. Um, moving on to that, um, one of the things that, and again, looking for supporters that will help us finding a certain solution, um, 
Ben, you work at uh, Fairtrade USA and your program has developed a mechanism specifically for that in these types of situations, um, farmers can be slightly protected in some sense. Um, but of course, there are many other farmers that are simply not part of this program um, for several reasons, several barriers that they have um, within their um, livelihood, so to say. What, from your point of view, would be an action in order to ensure that these producers are also uh, included in these types of mechanisms or other types of reinsurances? <clears throat> Thanks, Sarah. So um, just, just to level set, um, one of the things that's unique about fair trade is that it has a, a minimum price of $1.40 per pound for washed Arabica. Um, that price went from $1.20 to $1.40 in 2010, 2011. So um, while we recognize that it's truly a minimum price, um, we've done um, research throughout um, coffee-producing landscapes to understand that it's... Um, it's truly a baseline short-term break-even um, FOB price. Um, it's not perfect. Costs uh, of production vary from origin to origin. Um, but considering the market conditions, um, it's, it's really um, an, an essential um, price. It's not high enough to guarantee long-term sustainability. But again, considering market conditions, it's, it's the best we, we've been able to do so far. Um, Fair trade historically um, and to this day is, uh, is a market that's composed um, mostly of smallholder production, organizing cooperatives. Um, in 2012, Fair Trade USA began to expand the scope of that certification to include um, coffee produced on large farms with the preponderance of hired labor as well as by smallholders who are not organizing cooperatives. Um, today, 98.5% of the coffee that Fairtrade USA certifies, 2018 numbers, 175 million pounds into the U.S. market. 98.5% of that coffee is from smallholder cooperatives. Um, so while theoretically we have the ability to certify any producer in the world, um, we certify very few producers who are not cooperatives. Um, why is that? Um, I think is the essential question. And um, unfortunately... Uh, market demand for fair trade certified coffees um, is not sufficient to um, create opportunities for more producers who would benefit from those minimum prices in times of price crisis, um, which are cyclical, um, and we find ourselves uh, in the midst of a, of a very acute moment in terms of price crisis. Um, less than 2% of uh, last year's global supply was bought as fair trade certified. Um, so when it comes to expanding the benefit of fair trade, when it comes to addressing um, the current price crisis, when it comes to looking for solutions, um, I think it's great applaud that the SCA is taking initiative. Um, it's been um, really inspiring to watch um, the leadership of the World Coffee Producer Forum um, and producer uh, countries. Um, but there is a solution at play. Um, we can talk about how imperfect fair trade might be, um, but as a, um, a short-term um, safety net security blanket for producers, it is in place. It has been in place for decades. Um, but it's a market-based mechanism, and it requires 
demand. It requires buyers um, to buy the coffee in order to pay that price. And at less than 2% of global supply purchased on fair trade certified terms, that's going to have to change if the benefits of the model are going to expand to include other producers. Thank you, Ben. Anybody from the audience have specific questions or comments? Firstly, thanks, uh, thanks for your time this morning. Uh, with regards to the work of the SCA and sustainability, have you had a chance to look at accepting cont contextuality other industries, uh, whether it's commodities or f further away from us, that are actually getting good results, doing well, that we can learn from, or it's things that you've found interesting? Just if you could speak to that. Yeah, I mean, that is, um, I think that's one of those, like, uh, always been, I would say it's probably always been of interest, but um, but now we have uh, more resources to put toward that. And um, probably the ones that we have the closest relationships to now are um, cocoa, like in the kind of chocolate, um, fine chocolate especially, but the World Cocoa Forum, also bigger chocolate. And, um, and then maybe a little bit into cotton, and um, there are, when all the work that I've done, and, and maybe even into, you know, we heard from someone with the Banana Forum at RICO, um, and even into like uh, textiles when it comes to labor. But all of these, there are similarities, and, and some of them have different strengths in how they've addressed uh, specific aspects of it, but nobody's cracked the nut here. <laughs> you know, nobody, uh, when we say, like, who's done this really well, um, I think that, or I would love to be wrong about this, but the answer is nobody's really figured this one out yet. And I, I hope, and maybe it's because I'm um, romantic about coffee, but that coffee has the potential to do that in a way and that these other commodities and agricultural sectors don't because of the relationship that people have with coffee, because of the nature of our industry, um, some of the things that make it strong and, and unique and, and give us that opportunity, I think also make it harder when it comes. Um, but uh, yeah. Any other comments so far or questions? Hi. Um, Juan Esteban, at the end of your presentation, you mentioned that uh, there's a large percent of speculation going on in the sea market. Um, would you be able to estimate to what extent there's a speculation issue and to what extent there's like a fundamental oversupply issue with producing countries? And then kind of as a corollary to that, um, to what extent have you all looked at the international coffee agreement that kind of died in the late 90s and as a framework for a new solution? Is the ground being set for something like that as a solution, not only to the low price, but also to the volatility? Yes, thank you. Um, there, there, there are a few, a few things. One, um, what, what we get from, from the exchange and from traders is, uh, is uh, they cannot say exactly how much speculation is there, but, but, but they, can say, they can say it is there. Uh, the estimate is 60 to 70 percent of, of all the, of the transactions are done by what they call black boxes. Uh, that's one thing. On the other hand, remember that there's there's a very interesting structure in the in the exchange where if you are a commercial uh, a commercial player, you can do up to you could uh, have deliver like 500 lots. If you are non-commercial, you have no limitation. So the non-commercials can do whatever they want because it's not foreseen that they will be they regulated uh, have no limitations. Should the exchange do 
something about it? Uh, yes or no, and how? We'd have to, to measure, and the exchange is the one who, who could be able to measure that. You have different situations. One, there's an oversupply, or there's a, at least a huge production, mostly from Brazil. Uh, there's Vietnam as well, but, but mostly from Brazil. Uh, so that's, that's there, and, uh, and, uh, and something that something we have to live with, with in the sense that they're, they're efficient, they produce very good coffee, and uh, lots of it. Second, but you at the same time have a sea contract which was designed with a basket of origins that were supposed to be homogeneous, let's say the centrals. And at some point in 20, and we gave this, we had the discussion in 2004, uh, and I did it myself with, with Nibot at the time, which, interesting, and interesting enough, some of the roasters and lots of the traders were on, on, on this side, and, and the SCAA at the time was also very active on this, in, in having this discussion by saying, if you have, if you are going to start uh, having uh, coffee delivered, tender the exchange, that's not, this is different, significantly different to the one that is supposed to compose the basket, you will make the financial mechanism, let's say the, the, the futures contract, it will use it as a financial tool. It will not be as trustworthy because the base of the contract should, it will not be the, the, the asset supporting the contract will not be homogeneous. Interesting enough, because it was, it was public, we had a discussion, Folgers was a very, very active proponent to, to, um, against this initiative. They tabled it until 2009. When, uh, if I'm not wrong, 20, 20, no, 29. When, uh, when, uh, when ICE was not my body anymore, it was ICE. So discussion with ICE is a whole different ballgame. For those, for those of you who don't know, you know, ICE, ICE is the, the owner of, of the exchange of the futures. Uh, it's in the intercontinental exchange and, and ICE futures is the one where coffee is traded, the Arabic is traded. But ICE is a company that owns the New York Stock Exchange, the Commodities Exchange in New York, the Chicago Exchange, the London Exchange, the uh, the energy exchange. I mean, it's it's uh, it's uh, the biggest uh, um, um, trading house, let's say, company in the, in the world. It's a private company, and uh, and uh, with with shareholders, and they are entitled to do good businesses and bad businesses, and they are entitled, let's say, to increase their margins, to have as much liquidity as they can, so they can make as much money as they can, but. As I, we said before, the problem is that, that the more that is done, the more people starve. So that we, we have to find the balance and, and open this discussion in a very, very, I think, positive and very creative way. I think they are starting to be open to this discussion to, because what I said before, the small annoyance becomes a big annoyance, big annoyance becomes a reputational risk. And, uh, and that is starting to happen and people are starting to say, okay, okay, let's, guys, what, what is it that you want? Um, it's difficult to say to say how much speculation there is. I said what I said is about other transactions, and there's clear the speculation. That's not coffee changing hands. Uh, and uh, and uh, at the same time, is that a long, a short-term impact or a long-term impact? Would that bring the C contract to the uh, to the? Uh, I mean, Brazil is already, already deliverable. So, in fact, they're they're discussing. Sorry, they change the subject a little bit. Now the coffee committee is discussing if not only semi-washed coffees are deliverable, but also naturals. So now you're going to have a basket that includes the highest quality Arabicas and the unwashed Brazils in the same basket. And that's something that the traders, even roasters, are saying, eh, maybe that's 
kind of too much. But that's something that the, the, the coffee committee is looking at. So, and this is very easy to change, Ch changing, changing the regulation of coffee that can be, can be tendered there, and it's very simple. The, uh, the exchange does not have a problem, because if, there is, if that goes wrong, they just correct it back. Again, it's a private company, they can do whatever they want. And they're entitled to do bad businesses and then correct them. Mm -hmm. it's, not, it's not like, like any of your companies. Uh, so, so when with, with ICA, with the, with the ICO, the other day I heard our, our CEO, who's a very funny guy, gave an answer to this kind of question. He said, why don't, don't coffee producers create a cartel? Because only rich people can create cartels. <laughs> you can have a cartel with the Saudis and the, all, the, all the Arabs, and all, all the people producing oil, but a cartel between, let's say, Brazil being the big guy, but Colombia, Honduras, Angola, Uganda, Tanzania, that's not going to fly. Everybody's going to end up in jail in Miami <laughs> because it's, 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 it's illegal. It's, it's criminal, under criminal law in the U.S. to have those cartels. So, so it's, it would be much more of a problem than a possibility. Uh, so the answer is I don't see it happening. Uh, as, you, as you know, the, uh, the, uh, the uh, U.S. government um, is not a member anymore of ICO. Since, uh, since the new administration came in, they decided to cut on, on uh, different organizations, uh, not being members, the ICO being one of those. So there's no, the private sector goes there. You will say Rick Reinhardt and you have Bill Murray. They, they always attend, but they have no voice, no, no vote, no, and, and there's no one from the, from the US administration to, that you can talk to. So in a summary, you know, speculation, you're gonna measure, but we know it's there. Uh, the, uh, the, uh, the estimate 60-70% of the trades are by black boxes. Uh, the impact, we, we don't know how much it is. The basket is not homogeneous and they're looking to make it even less homogeneous now. Uh, and uh, creating a cartel is not viable. Thank you, Juan. I think that was a very relevant question in order to see, okay, so what is going on, especially when it comes to coffee as a commodity. Um, there are also other initiatives that are trying to find or give or, or develop certain mechanisms that could actually help those producers that are focused on especially coffee or, or have that uh, as an opportunity to sell off their coffee especially. Um, Chad, could, could you briefly, briefly first explain a bit on, on the efforts that you're doing on with transparent trade and, um, and what has been the first response from uh, the producers that have been using it? Um, as a guidance. Great. Thanks, Vera. Uh, so the Specialty Coffee Transaction Guide is a research project in partnership with Emory University. Uh, real nutshell explanation here. It's a project that takes data related to FOB pricing from a variety of data donors who are roasters, importers, exporters of coffee. And what the researchers are doing is organizing that information in tables to give producers and buyers of coffee alike uh, different price references so that we don't have to look at or care about the, the, the C market as a reference price. We know uh, all of us in this room probably know that it's an absolutely inappropriate price discovery point for the kind of coffee that we need to differentiate in our industry, as Kim said. And so what we're doing is creating a different set of reference points for people to start their negotiation processes from. 
Um, in response to your question, Vera, uh, producers, as we socialized the guide, as we were getting ready to release the pilot, um, we met with uh, producing communities in a number of countries to learn and understand their perspectives on what it was we were doing. Were we creating a tool that was going to be useful and helpful uh, and something that would give them information they, they previously did not have access to? Um, and I would say, by and large, the response was overwhelmingly positive. Um, at the same time, we received interesting questions, which are exactly what we're supposed to start asking. And those are questions like, an FOB price is an FOB price, but I'm a farmer, and I need to understand this magic that occurs between my farm and the port that gets someone else that much more money than I got for my coffee. So it's causing this situation where information out there is, is leading people to ask questions and seek efficiencies in this value stream that we have today where there are lots of inefficiencies, let's say, and with as little money going into coffee, uh, as little money being given coffee as a, as a valued product, we have to be as efficient as we can and identify where we might be having losses and ensuring that the most amount of money that can do gets to producers. Now, on the other side of the, of the value stream, uh, I would say we've been received, uh, embraced and welcomed by the roasting community who, guess what? also need, want, and crave an alternative price discovery tool so that they can be held accountable not to prices on the commodity market that they know are inappropriate for their business models and the quality they need to achieve, but also that they can kind of compare to their peers in the market and understand if an 84 to me means this price, what does it mean to the rest of the market? And so we're starting to create a, a, a series of of different benchmarks. Again, it's right now, it's just information. It's not uh, more or less correct than anything else, but it's information that gives us a different, let's say, starting point from a negotiations perspective than does the C, which again, I will say, we know is utterly inappropriate for our, our business segment as a price discovery tool. Thank you, Chad. Um, Kelly, go ahead. Hi, everyone. Thanks for having me here. My name is Kelly Stein. I'm an independent journalist from Brazil and write about coffee for nine years. And I have actually one comment and one question. First comment is, when you talk Brazil, uh, everybody thinks about the big guys, but 81% of uh, coffee farming is family, families, small families with, with farms from, with two to eight hectares. So when you start m maybe mention about Brazil or make jokes or just comparing, just think about families. They are the big guys, like we have record harvests because we have more than 130 years dedicated to technology and innovation. That's why. So we are talking about families and most of these families don't have enough money to pay for fair trade. So what you're we are already doing a homework, like investing in the domestic market. 2018, we, we consumed 21 million bags. My question to the table is, uh, are you, is there any insights uh, of promoting domestic market in these producing countries just to assure that those producers have at least some income? I think that's a question for the moderator. I think we all here are consumers at the end of the day, and I, I think uh, it's really depending on, on how we want to... Um, be informed, correct? I, for example, um, will not use clothing in this case, but um, 
I, for example, care more about certain elements in my life that I, which I buy than versus others. And I think it's one of the most difficult um, things to um, include consumers in this discussion as we also do not have the full answers, correct? Um, when it comes to more for me um, on consumption in general um, and consumption that could support um, part of the solution, I definitely think that we as consumers and drinking coffee can ask certain questions when we consume it. And it's there where you sometimes know and mark a difference. Um, for example, um, we'll not, I'll call it brands here because I don't think it's relevant. I think it will more say for me that me buying a cup of coffee above better said, a certain price, I know that it's being sourced in a certain manner, sourced in a certain manner. Many of, of our producing countries, and in Brazil is a perfect example, where uh, we are seeing that it increases around 3 to 4% in consumption, and now reaching a consumption level of 21, 22 million bags is causing a certain, certain shift in the domestic market that is creating a certain group of middle-class people to consume coffee um, and to consume and even pay more than on average is being paid for in coffee. And those mechanisms that are happening in these countries and that added value that is being created is, first of all, left within the country itself, and that's a good indicator. Here, René presented in his presentation, you know, it's outrageous to see that the U.S. is receiving more in taxes when it comes to importing coffee than what is being received by all the producing countries. That's mind-blowing for me. And if we can add value, at the end of the day, for me, it's more important to add value for the producers then perhaps, yes, we also need to think, as producing countries, or shift our mindset to consuming countries and look into the fact that we ourselves can add value to that cup of coffee for our producers. I think that's a very valuable lesson for us. I know for a fact, I mean, Colombia has actively promoted drinking coffee throughout the whole day on whatever occasion, and that's very important because at the end of the day, between 2009 and 2015, you increased from 1.2 million bags all the way to 1.6 million bags. And those changes in the society are important at the end of the day for our own producers. So I very much welcome also everybody that also visits um, Origin uh, and visit these producing countries. Don't only look from a production point of view to these countries, look also in the consumption point of view. Look for that specific cup of coffee within the city itself, within the village itself. I guarantee you that there are many cafe owners outside the metropolitan areas of these countries that actually are actively making sure that everybody is drinking coffee. Uh, so do so very much. And, um, and that's for me, from what I said. Uh, yeah, go ahead once. <laughs> I want to address something about consumption because it, it's also interesting. I agree with you, and Brazil is doing a great job, and, uh, and the, the work we've been doing has been advised by Brazil. However, the, uh, the, one of the, of the main topics in the past forum and uh, in all the declarations, including the, in the meeting that we had with, uh, with all the big, uh, the big players in Brazil, with CNC, with, uh, with the unions, with BSEA, was we need to increase consumption producing countries because there's a lot of coffee, and we need to... That coffee has to be consumed, and we need to increase it at a faster pace. 
The ICO is, uh, is we have brought this issue to the ICO. The ICO has been very active, uh, mostly Colombia and Brazil has been pushing, been pushing for this. But interestingly enough, the Indian, uh, not just the coffee board, but, uh, but also the coffee trust, which is the private sector, they are, they are pushing and they are right now uh, um, looking at how to increase consumption in India. In the, in the meeting that we have for the, 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 the foreign producing countries, we, uh, we uh, told the Indians, to, told India to create, they, they are doing a study of where is consumption in India and where they see it can grow. And this is going to be one of the topics. India, India is an example of, of uh, try to, to create like a pilot project for India uh, with the, with the, the Brussels Forum, funded hopefully by with the ICO help, fund, fund it and, and Indian government and maybe some other players. To develop, develop something that can be replicable. The Indians have, they claim they have 450 million uh, people in the middle class that could be, some of those could be consuming coffee. So I'm very, very interested in the, in the, the forum and the ICO, everybody's moving. This is one of the, of the key elements that we're working on. Because we producers, we're not that good of coffee drinkers. Everybody but Brazil, we're not good coffee drinkers. Uh, and even Brazil is half of, uh, of Norway and some other countries. You're five to six uh, kilos per person per year, and, uh, and the, they are like 11 or 12. So we, even, even Brazil, which is a huge, is going to be the first consumer very soon, first producer and for a consumer, can grow more. And in our case, it's, uh, we're very, 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 very small too. And we're better than, than most. So IC was working on that, India's working on that, and the producers forum we're working on, on how to increase consumption. And Brazil is helping a lot, the Brazilian authorities. Uh, any other questions? Thanks, everyone. Stephanie Daniels from the Sustainable Food Lab. Just to someone's question about what's happening in other sectors. I think one of the unique opportunities of the SCA Price Response Task Force, or yeah. whatever you call yourselves, is to um, gather those experience. And two specific ones, I think the vanilla and the cocoa sector are looking at ways to use... Um, Nonprofit reports around reference prices and some of those that's a legal way for the commercial sector to talk about those prices. Um, the other one is competition law. So the European, a number of European company, uh, countries are getting together to say, what's the precedent in the courts for companies to come together to talk about uh, sustainability goals and how price feeds into that? And so you know, hopefully SCA can be kind of a conduit to your members for those other efforts that could have some relevance for the coffee price. Thank you, Stephanie, for that. Uh, we will definitely look into on, on how we can learn from vanilla and, and cocoa in that manner. Um, any other questions from the floor? Before my panel leaves, please. <laughs> I have a question regarding, like, what the, the coffee tree crop cycle in terms of uh, during Renee's presentation, we see like all of the f symptoms of like an overproduction, and then prices are low. People are abandoning their farms; are unable to cover the costs. So logically, we would think that in the next few years there will be, and they're saying that there's like underproduction and some of the or underutilization of some of the mills, but the infrastructure. So production would look go down in response to these lower prices which would lower supply, and then we would think that prices would begin to go back up. Is that fair to say? And 
could you contextualize like the crisis within like a larger time frame? I, I will answer partially, and I will ask Rene to uh, to uh, give the Central American perspective. I think it's accurate. I think that that uh, as people do not have uh, enough income, they will fertilize less. Uh, you know, cleaning the farm. You know, all the all the practices they need to to have in place will will be will deteriorate somehow, and that will have an impact in in coffee, of course. Uh, in the case of Colombia, we have uh, we have had to, as federation and, uh, and in many areas with support of the, with support of the government, uh, we've had to create incentives and credits and lots of things so people can continue doing what they are doing, but it's uh, it's financed by by a third party, a third party being either the federation or the government. The federation, you know, like bridging with the government, so there are some resources resources flow to flow to uh, to producers, but I don't think many many countries. I would say most countries do not have the institutional structure that will allow them to do these kinds of things, or don't have the governments don't have the resources uh, to uh, to do that. In this, uh, just to give an example, which is a very very small a very small amount for the size of the problem, but but we recently, you know, agree with the government. We're receiving about fifty million dollars support. Uh, to to support the income of the of the farmers, it's with the, with the way we see the price going. It's going we go way beyond that, and at the same time we have the credit programs and incentives for fertilizing and so on. So so that's the case of Colombia, but I think we're the exception more than the rule. Maybe Rene can can uh, tell us a little bit about about Central right? America. Bueno, lo mencionamos en la presentación en la mañana. Lo, ya es evidente el cambio en los niveles de producción que está habiendo en los países mesoamericanos. Por eso utilizamos el ejemplo de la utilización, del porcentaje de utilización de la infraestructura. Ya es, muy, ya es bastante bajo en algunos países. Inclusive países que venían creciendo, como el caso de Honduras, que ha estado creciendo, creciendo, que sabemos que ha hecho un, un esfuerzo muy, muy grande institucionalmente los productores para financiar ese crecimiento, aún y cuando no estaba pagando el café, ya están proyectando que se les empieza a caer la, la producción. Eso es una realidad interna que están revisando el pronóstico de cosecha que tenían porque eh, tienen eh, expectativas de una caída quizás hasta de un 25% en su producción. Eh, el quinto país productor del mundo que estaba creciendo, que bueno, ya va para abajo. Así que sí, eh, si las cosas continúan como están y el productor sigue sin tener la rentabilidad necesaria, seguro empieza con un mal manejo de la finca, eh, tratan de hacerlo por un tiempo con la expectativa y con la esperanza de que pueda mejorar, pero al no ocurrir... Empieza a ocurrir abandono total de fincas, migración, reemplazo, sustitución de cultivo, pérdida de calidad. Así que eh, yo sí creo que de continuar este problema en el largo plazo va, va, va a ocurrir. Y con él lo importante a tener en cuenta es que vendrá la pérdida de muchos de esos orígenes que nos dan esa tasa interesante, que nos gusta, que buscamos en las cafeterías especiales. Nos quedaremos con aquel café común, de volumen, que quizás no nos da eso, esa, esas tasas especiales, que es la que hemos estado impulsando y que las olas y las tendencias novedosas en, 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 el, en el procesamiento y preparación de café nos están motivando y nos están eh, enseñando a consumir. Muchísimas gracias, René. I would like to thank you, everybody, for your attention. Um...
That was the end of the second part of a two-part arc about the sea market and the future of specialty at Specialty Coffee Expo in April 2019. Remember to check out our show notes for a full transcript of this lecture and a link to coffeeexpo.org for more information about this year's event. This has been an episode of the SCA Podcast Expo Lecture Series, brought to you by members of the Specialty Coffee Association and supported by SAP's Soft Engine Coffee One. Thanks for listening.